In 58 AD, the Christian church in Rome found itself deeply divided between her Jewish and Gentile members. To help guide the church towards unity, St. Paul wrote the longest of his 13 letters to God's beloved in Rome. You could argue that Paul's lengthiest letter was the most important letter ever written. Not just by Paul, by anyone, ever. The most prolific of New Testament authors, the second most influential character in the Christian tradition, an anti-Jesus zealot and Pharisee who changed course on the road to Damascus to become a primary architect of the Christian faith. He wrote a letter to the fledgling church that would help define her beliefs early on and continues to help define who we are as Jesus' people today. It's a profoundly historical book written out of a deep personal understanding of and relationship with God. Romans, the most important letter ever written. Hey friends, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can take your digital device and you can open the version, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures, they've already been uploaded. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you and I'm so grateful that you're a part of our family. Just a reminder, if you do want additional content, if you just wanna ask me questions or if you're confused about anything in this message, you can get on a Zoom call for an hour. It's called Ask the Pastor, that's at eight o'clock on Tuesday night. All you have to do is RSVP on our website. But let's get straight into the journey that we've been in on for the past few weeks talking about the when. Let's pray. God, we love you. We honor you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing even in these difficult times. I pray today that our hearts and our minds would be opened, that your word would take root in fertile soil, and that we would be changed. Make us less like us and more like you in Jesus' name, amen. So we left off last week with Paul taking this divine detour and landing in Troas. And while he was there, he met Luke. And after meeting Luke, his ministry was deeply impacted and deeply improved. And while they're in Troas, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. After he'd seen the vision, immediately they sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called them to preach the gospel to them. And they determined that they'd go to Philippi. And they determined that because of its significance in the region. Named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, it was where Octavian battled Mark Antony and defeated the murderers of Julius Caesar. This city was legendary and had come to be known as Little Rome. Citizens of Rome were held in really high regard there. It was a great place to start for Paul and Silas, both of whom were Roman citizens. There was, however, no synagogue in the city, which meant there were fewer than 10 Jewish males living in the city. So Paul's preferred delivery system, it wasn't available to him. So instead, he preached in what's called the open air. And on their first Sabbath, Paul and Silas stumbled upon this small group of women who were preparing to offer prayer and praise, and obviously they introduced themselves to them. Paul went on to tell them why they were there, and he spoke of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. One of the women was a wealthy business owner named Lydia, who was a seller of purple cloth, the most expensive garments in the world. She wholeheartedly responded. She excitedly received Jesus and Paul immediately baptized not just her, but everyone living in her household. 
And so as a symbol of her gratitude, she invited them to stay in her home. But Paul, he initially declined, not wanting to seem like a freeloader. But Lydia, she pushed until Paul finally timidly accepted. That would prove to be a really wise decision. For the next few days, Lydia leveraged her local influence and several people who she conducted business with. They came to her house, they received Jesus, and they were baptized by Paul. A new church was formed in that house. This is where Paul thought that he would stay. He thought that he'd dig these really deep foundations. Maybe this is where God would allow him to center their missionary journeys from. And so daily he went to the river, he preached, and he baptized new converts. On the 12th day after their arrival, while they were walking toward the river, the apostles heard this eerie, oddly high-pitched voice crying out behind them. That voice said, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Paul, he just ignored the cry. But Luke, he knew that this girl, she was a slave. She was a pythoness from Delphi, the world famous shrine of Apollo, where the Delphic Oracle was consulted about the future by kings and statesmen from around the world. Possessed by the same spirit, this little slave girl served as a portable version of the oracle's voice and was made available for a really steep price to those who couldn't make the trip to Apollo's shrine. She would have been in really high demand to anybody who wanted to peer into their future. She was owned by a local crime syndicate. The next day, in the same place, The apostles, they heard the same voice. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Then a third day and a fourth day, same place, same voice. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Finally, tired of being advertised by and associated with an evil spirit and disgusted at the shameless exploitation of this innocent little girl, Paul turned and said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. The demon, it immediately fled. The girl suddenly relaxed, lost her wild look, and spoke in a normal voice. Her owners understandably were furious. She'd suddenly been reduced from a highly lucrative investment to an ordinary slave girl. They turned on the apostles, shouting and swinging the crowd against them. The yelling mob, they dragged them to the city magistrate, accusing them of public disturbance, which the magistrate could clearly see as the crowd yelled and pummeled Paul. And they're Jews, they shouted. And that was bad. As far as the Romans were concerned, Jews always caused trouble. Claudius had just expelled them from Rome, and the magistrate would have likely thought, Little Rome should do the same. But the accusers, they weren't finished. They continued. And they teach customs that aren't lawful for Romans to accept or practice. That right there, that was it. The punishment, it was swift. And the apostles, they they never even attempted to defend themselves. As the punishers drew their rods, Paul and Silas had their clothes torn off and were thrown at the flogging post. There wasn't even a need to tie them down. Dozens of angry arms held them in place. Well, they were swarmed by the crowd. They were lashed over and over and over and over. Legal lash limits went out the window as rage and emotions erupted. While the blood ran from their wounds, the crowd, they roared, thirsty for more. Finally, the apostles, they collapsed. 
As they laid limp, soldiers dragged their bodies through the dirty, dusty streets to the local prison. And the jailer, he was given strict orders to guard them closely. To prove his superiority, he then had them mauled and manhandled. Still naked, they were dragged across the putrid prison floor and thrown into a windowless cave where waiting for them was a device that was used for both security and for torture. Rough wood and metal bars could be positioned so that the criminal's legs could be stretched wide and held tight. The prisoner's arms and their throat, they could also be shackled, but without the strength to struggle, it was determined that Paul and Silas would only have their feet clamped. They were left with only one option for their bodies to be positioned, flat on their mangled, mutilated backs. Their wounds were filled with dirt and rocks, sticks and shards of broken bone. Side by side, Paul and Silas laid stunned. While shock set in, blood congealed and muscles stiffened, their clothes were tossed in on top of them. But in the cold of the night, they couldn't stop shivering and were forced to lay in their own excrement. Sleep, it never came. Their minds, they searched for an answer to the outrage, indignity, and injury they had just illegally endured as Roman citizens in a Roman colony. As the night wore on, though, rather than thinking of justice or revenge, their minds were overwhelmed with the thought that nothing would separate them from the love of Christ. Not troubles or hardships, not persecutions or famine, not nakedness, danger, or the sword. No, in all these things, they were more than conquerors through him who loved them. So they began to pray. Then they began to praise. They filled the prison with singing. And the Greek word that Luke uses that we translate to the English word singing is humneo. It means to signal. They were sending a signal to each other and the other prisoners were hearing it all. Paul was telling Silas and Silas was telling Paul to be strong and courageous because God, he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And the song that they were singing, it's called the Great Hallel. It's the song the Jews sang during the Passover Seder, the weekly celebration and ceremony retelling the story where God delivered his people from death. It's from the 136th Psalm. And every one of its 26 lines ends with the same declaration that God's love endures forever. They were sending a signal that although it felt like death was all around them, this too would pass. And while they sing, the whole prison shook as an earthquake struck. The stocks, they came loose in the cave The bars and the doors, they fell from the outer prison walls. The jailer, he sprinted from his barracks and saw the doors hanging wide open. His heart, it sank. The prisoners, they must be gone. He would be required to exchange his life for their escape. Without hesitation, he chose suicide over public disgrace and execution. He drew his sword, but then he heard a voice from the cave. It was Paul. And he shouted, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer, he ran into the chamber and he saw Paul and Silas standing with matted hair and backs stiff with dried blood. He couldn't believe it. 
why were they still here? He could feel the Spirit of God in them and threw himself at their feet. Trembling, he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas instantly knew. Just so this man could be saved, God had trusted them with this difficulty. So they joyfully replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And not just you, but everyone in your household. The jailer, he immediately submitted himself to Jesus and led them out to the courtyard to a fountain where he would wash their wounds with his own hands. Then he was immediately baptized in that fountain, quickly followed by everyone in his family. And that jailer and his family, they would go on to join the new church at Lydia's house and lead throngs of Romans to Jesus, all because of how Paul and Silas responded when they were forced to be locked down. And I wonder, how have you responded while you've been forced to be locked down? Last week, I was watching Pastor Sonny's show, Cheery Conversations, and she had Dr. Robin Wilkerson as her guest. And Dr. Robin said something that, that stiff-armed me. It stopped me in my tracks. She said, being quarantined has given us the chance to face ourselves. And I wonder, when you face yourself, what is it that you see? What's the pulp that's produced from your pressure? In my first ministry assignment, I went to be a youth pastor in Memphis, Tennessee. And while I was there, my pastor had a stroke and the board wanted him to resign. And so they tried to recruit me to take his place. But I refused to be disloyal. So they went to another state. They found a different guy and they hired him. He was just a few years older than me. And, and him and I, we were cool. But a year after he got there, one of my heroes, Rich Wilkerson, Dr. Robin's husband, he asked me to come and speak for him at his church in Miami. And on that trip, Rich asked me to come be his youth pastor. And I was honored, but I declined. I was sold out to my church in Memphis. But when I got back home, my pastor had heard about the offer and accused me of being dishonest and disloyal. And he fired me. I was so angry. I thought, disloyal fool, the only reason you're here, the only reason you even have this job is because I refused to be disloyal. But the damage, it had been done. His mind, it had been made up. I needed a job. And so Rich called in a favor. He called his father-in-law and he got me a job as the youth pastor at Life Center in Tacoma, Washington, where I would work for Fulton Buntain. And guys, just about everything I know about how to do church, I learned from Pastor Buntain. And it showed me, even when the enemy thinks he's holding you down, God is lifting you up. And it makes me wonder, what difficulty have you been trusted with? You know, we're not very persecuted, and yet we're not very loyal. So from this story, from Paul's life, I see three situations he's faced with. I see three things he's trusted with and what his response was to those things. And guys, there's a lot that we can learn from this. And here's the first. Number one, he was accused. And not only was he accused, he was falsely accused. And interestingly, he could have escaped those accusations. He could have claimed his Roman citizenship and avoided the proceedings. But there was a citizenship that was more important to Paul than his Roman citizenship. He'd later say that we're citizens of heaven and we're waiting for the arrival of our Savior Jesus who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. So Paul, he responded with silence. He lived by this overwhelming conviction that said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone 
who believes. Why would he recuse himself of that? He understood that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in a time of trouble. And I wonder if he thought recusing himself might take away from the value of his message. How is it that you respond when you're accused? Here's the second. He was abused. And not just abused. He was brutally beaten. But he refused to be a victim. He looked to the example set before him by Jesus, who as the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So Paul didn't respond with wailing or with whining. He responded with worship. Pastor Sonny and I were talking about the quarantine this past week and what that means for the church going forward. And she said, the church has always been the holy place. But now the home, that's needing to be the sacred space too. And it got me to thinking, you know, wherever we are has the ability to become a sacred space. Because wherever you are, that's where you are. And if Jesus is in you, that's where he is. That place has the ability to be a sacred space. And it's not easy. It's difficult. But you're being trusted with that. Paul was trusted with his difficulty. And honestly, if you aren't being trusted with any difficulty, you need to start asking yourself why. So in the midst of his abuse, Paul responded with "Humneo." He sent a signal. What signal are you sending? Here's the third. He was excused. And when he was, he didn't just dip out. He responded by staying in the place that God had put him. And when he stayed there, he led the jailer and his entire family to Jesus because he understood that God's ways are higher than ours. And I wonder, what are you going to do when you're excused? What are you going to do when you're released from this lockdown? Are you going to go back to the same life as the same person? We still be preoccupied? We still be too busy for your kids? Will you still be overworked, overstressed, overextended financially? Which version of you are you going to see in the mirror? I know it feels like death is all around you. Death of your hopes and dreams, your safety and security, your future and your finances, but this too will pass. The question is, who are you going to be when it does? Are you going to be a victim or are you going to be a victor? Will you close your eyes? Some of you who are watching this right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say going from a victim to a victor. You have lamented. You have wrung your hands. You've thrown your arms up. You've been angry and everything's been a conspiracy theory, but it hasn't just been in this pandemic. For those of you, that's just been the life that you've lived. It's been exhausting. And so today it's time for us to shift from victim to victor. And I wonder will you do that today? I'm gonna pray for you right now. God, today for my friends who are watching this, who have lived their life as victims, I pray you would give us the boldness to live our lives in the victorious way that you've called us to. To submit ourselves, to su submit all of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our intentions to you. And when we do that, you'll take us to the place that you've called us to be. In your name, amen. Maybe you're here today and you say, Sean, I've never thought about this going from a victim to a victor mentality. I've just lived my life with the way that it's been thrown to me.
today something you said, like that jailer, something shook you, something moved you, something sparked inside you. You recognized the Spirit of God and you said, I don't know what to do about that, sir. How can I be saved? So today we're going to give you the opportunity to do that. We're going to give you the opportunity to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And what that means is that you're giving him control and you're allowing him to rescue you. So today, if you're watching this and you say, Sean, I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. My life is falling apart. Sir, how can I be saved? I'm going to pray a few words in a prayer and I'm going to pause. And if you need to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, all you have to do is repeat those words after I pause. The scripture says, if you mean him in your heart, you will be saved. And so would you say this after me? Would you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you change me? Will you come into my life, make me different, make me new, be my Lord, be my Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, you just made the best, most important decision you ever have or ever will make in your life. And it's not gonna be easy. You're going to be challenged. And so we want the opportunity to help with you. We want the opportunity to walk this Jesus journey with you. So would you help us help you do that? Would you just click that link that says you're choosing to follow Jesus? That'll give us the opportunity to connect with you and to follow up with you. I love you so much. I'm so excited that you're now part of the family of God. Would you worship with us?